0: Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. We form a global brotherhood bound together by a common desire to understand, repair, design, and build our own electronic equipment, and by a willingness to help each other in our efforts to master radio technology. All are welcome. Now, please join us in the Solder Smoke. Okay, Sunday, the 2nd of October, 2011, this is Solder Smoke 138. Kind of an astronomical, philosophical, ecological theme this week. I'll explain it. It, it all started with my birthday on September 14th. I completed 53 orbits, kind of an IGY thing. Um, on the previous days, I'd been out early in the morning looking at Jupiter with my 6-inch Newtonian-Dubsonian. Telescope, and I was debating on the the morning of my birthday whether I should go out and take another look. I was kind of tired, didn't feel like dragging the telescope out, but I figured what the heck might be able to uh, snag a couple of morning dog walkers, force them to look at the wonders of the universe, and marvel at the uh, technological miracle that is my uh, six inch Newtonian Dubsonian telescope. So I decided, okay, I'll take the telescope out. I set up down at the end of the driveway. Jupiter was in a good position between the two big trees out of my front yard. And just as I got Jupiter in the scope, just as I put my eye to the eyepiece, lo and behold, a meteor flashed right through the field of view of the scope and disintegrated right in front of Jupiter it was really spectacular really cool I like to see meteors Uh, especially like to see them when they're in the field of view of the scope and having one disintegrate right in front of Jupiter was uh, a very nice uh, birthday present from the heavens Um, three moons were visible Europa I later found out was the missing moon and it was um, behind Jupiter's disk at that time you could check these things out by Consulting with the heavens above website or the in this case I think I used the Sky and Telescope um, Java program that lets you know what uh, where everything is uh, in terms of Jupiter. So anyway, a good um, day birthday present from the heavens and uh, you know that got me to reading. I've been doing some astronomical reading lately and I got in my hands right now. Um, what i've been reading lately it's a pale blue dot a vision of the human future in space by carl sagan you know carl sagan cosmos this this book is sort of a, a follow-on to cosmos not really in the same league cosmos was just such a great book and a and a global almost universal <laughs> sensation <laughs> uh, with billions and billions uh copied but uh I I like uh, Pale Blue Dot, and I've kind of picked my way through it. Interesting stuff from the point of view of uh, the radio amateur. Uh, Carl, you know, frequently talks about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and he's got a interesting passage here, something I hadn't really heard about. Meta, a project that they were involved in, um, the multi-channel, I think it's, it's a multi-channel or mega-channel extraterrestrial assay. Uh, an effort to look at um, millions of channels and Sagan says that uh, he thinks they found 11 signals 11 signals that might actually be um, from extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, the problem as he describes it in the book is that it's not really verifiable in the sense that you can't go back to the same frequency and to the same point in the sky and, you know, listen in on somebody's (laughs) drive time radio program from uh, alpha centauri but um, he thinks that there's an explanation for this he says that it could be that in picking up those signals we were dealing with kind of the radio equivalent of stars twinkling stars twinkle because the atmosphere is in motion between them and us, and occasionally the atmosphere moves in such a way that it concentrates the, uh, the starlight at a particular point, and the star twinkles a bit brighter, and, of course, the opposite takes place. He thinks that the same thing might be happening with radio signals coming from elsewhere in the galaxy. They might be passing through clouds of... Um, Ionized gas that might cause a kind of a similar effect at radio frequencies, and that uh, that might might explain why, for brief moments, or actually minutes, we were able to get these radio signals, and that they may in fact be of uh, extraterrestrial origin. Eleven of them, and uh, he also did some analysis, and he found it it uh, quite interesting that they were all located on the galactic plane. Also comments in here about how um, we are all ourselves uh, radio transmitters uh, <laughs> and uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. So uh, Pale Blue Dot, if you get a copy of it, take a look. It's worth a worth a look. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and uh, also, I've been looking at, uh, and this is very appropriate for guy has been out using a Newtonian telescope a book called Newton's Gift by David Berlinsky. And he, he talks a bit about um, how um, I was surprised as I read through it, kind of the uh, the human dimension of Isaac Newton and the fact that there's evidence in this book that Isaac Newton, who I've always sort of envisioned as this very kind of aloof, um, you know, um, 17th century um, British intellectual with um, probably with, with a wig on and, uh, and you know, just a, a lifestyle and an existence very, very remote from, from ours. But in this book, we learn that, uh, that Newton exhibited signs of what today we would call the knack. Uh, For example, let me read a, a passage here from the book. Newton's full immersion into English intellectual life came about when, in 1670, he designed and then made a small but powerful reflecting telescope. The principle of a reflecting telescope had been well known for more than 100 years. Light enters at one end and then is reflected from a convex mirrored surface at the other. It is the mirror that enlarges the image the result is free of the colored distortions that affect refracting telescopes. The chief difficulty of the reflecting telescope is that in order to see the magnifying mirror an observer must look down the telescope's shaft thus blocking incoming rays of light. Newton solved this problem by placing two mirrors at oblique angles to the stream of light. One reflected the image onto the other and thence to the viewer. It was an ingenious and delicate design. With innocent pride in his achievement, Newton presented his telescope to the Royal Society in London. Now at the time, members of the Society still seemed generally unsure of its purpose, convening to hear odd lectures in which various biological curiosities would be exhibited to some excitement but to little effect. The Royal Society was nonetheless a gathering place for powerful English scientists, and if its offices could not yet discharge the prestige it had acquired, it was still an institution that invited envy from those whom it had denied admission. Newton's little telescope caused a sensation. It was compact, elegant, beautifully made by hand, and efficient, its resolving powers comparable to of instruments several times its size it was entirely free of chromatic aberrations newton was made a member of the royal society at once and here we are centuries later deciding that he had the knack <laughs> you know i might have mentioned this before on the on the podcast forgive me if i repeat myself but you know while i was in london i had a chance to go over to the library of the royal society we had some some big shots from NASA and some ads from NASA there in town. And the Royal Society wanted to put on a bit of a show, I guess, and in their very kind of understated British way. They left out on the uh, table there in the Royal Society library two, two items. One was an old book that was left open. And we were astonished, no, gobsmacked to discover that it was, in fact, the original manuscript of Newton's uh, Principia, the most important book in, in mathematics and science, arguably. Um, the other item was the little telescope that uh, I just read to you about. And uh, it was, in fact, beautifully made. And it, it was just sitting there right in front of me. It was really amazing to know that that was the, uh, the Newtonian telescope made by hand by by Isaac Newton amazing stuff you know and you know not only was I looking through the telescope but uh, I've been cleaning my telescopes too because uh, I had occasion to peer down the tube and I looked at the mirror at the bottom and it was really really in need of a cleaning so I uh Pulled out the manuals and consulted with some YouTube videos. There was a fellow over there in the UK told me exactly how to do it. Got myself some distilled water, some cotton wool, a suitable basin, some uh, as, the, as the, the guy from the UK put it, some washing up liquid um, dishwasher stuff and put it in the water and sunk the two mirrors in there. The four, the four and a half inch Tasco mirror and the uh, six inch mirror from the Orion telescope got them both cleaned up very nicely now I have to collimate them but uh, that's okay I um, I had a fun time cleaning them up it was a bit of I guess it was zen in the art of telescope maintenance something like that um, so I had some fun doing some telescope maintenance today let's see what else we got here now I guess it's time gentlemen to move into the, to the realm of the radio and uh, Shell Silverstein here before. Let me just pause here for a second. Hold on, stand by. One, I want to save the data? Yeah, I mentioned Shell Silverstein. Guy, a very talented poet and writer and artist and songwriter. Wrote a lot of the uh, favorite poetry books that my kids read when they were younger. <laughs> kind of a weird eclectic kind of guy too, because he wrote some articles for Playboy magazine. I understand. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, he also was a songwriter for rock and roll bands, including Dr. Hook and the medicine show. And the famous song that he wrote was the thrill that'll hit you when you get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Well, once again, I find myself not on the cover of the Rolling Stone, but on the cover of that esteemed journal of radio science, Hot Iron, the journal of the constructors club from out there in the West of England, editor, Um, Tim Walford, and I'll read you um, an editorial that appears on the front page of the Autumn 2011 issue, issue 73. Again, very propitious uh, number here. Anyway, um, Tim writes, the start of yet another year. I invited Nick Tile to write something for this slot. He writes, and I quote from Nick, as an environmentalist, the QRP movement is inspirational. Over the last few years, I've watched the radio amateur go from being a very capable and competent artisan who could turn his hand to building or repairing his radios, capable of adapting what he had to hand, often improving it, reusing parts, and sharing knowledge and components with other amateurs, to a completely different breed. Indeed. Arguably, they are still technically very competent, but they are people who buy expensive equipment who wouldn't dream of opening it up. It's too expensive, too complex in any way. It isn't repairable or adaptable. Through the good offices of people like Tim, G3PCJ, George, G3RJV, Amen, I EI9GQ, and Bill, N2CQR over at Solder Smoke, i got to pause here. I am... I am proud to be in that company. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you, Tim. I continue. Bill N2CQR over at Solder Smoke and an army of unsung heroes who have participated in and driven forward a sort of grassroots movement. We have seen a new version of the old-fashioned amateur rising slowly, typified by the QRPers, people who do more for less. Use greatly reduced component counts, every part there for a purpose. Simplicity of virtue and performance not compromised, or better still, appropriate. These are people who have adopted QRP as a philosophy. People who have looked at technology and seen its limitations, or simply tinkerers and makers. Wow, I am inspired. Nick Tile, up the revolution, indeed. Okay guys, time for a little confession here from yours truly. <laughs> I, I don't know if any some of you guys did catch this cuz you sent me emails, and this is how I knew <laughs> that I blew it. McMurdo Silver. What a great name. You know the guy who made the uh, McMurdo Silver radios. I never never realized that it was a real person named McMurdo Silver. And I said in the last episode I said that this was an example of the great kind of radio names that we have in in the radio world, radio names, McMurdo Silver, Hiram Percy Maxim, Copthorne MacDonald. Uh, Steve uh, snort Smith out there on the left coast reminded me of Philo T. Farnsworth. Indeed, that's a good example. And um, a fellow who himself has a great radio name, Armand Hamill, wrote to me and told me the story of uh, of uh, Amory H. Waite. I put a a, an article about him up on the blog, a ham with another ham like uh, McMurdo Silver, who has had some connections to Antarctic exploration. All right, but where I blew it, McMurdo Silver, I guess I was reading about McMurdo Silver, and I was reading that he was, invi- in fact, involved in some way in Antarctic exploration. And I guess I jumped to the conclusion that McMurdo Base was somehow named for him, which, by the way, doesn't make any sense at all, because if you're going to name something for somebody, you don't use the first name. <laughs> you know, I guess it must have been early in the morning. Maybe the coffee hadn't kicked in. Maybe it's an IGY thing. I don't know. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed reasonable, but no. Um, uh, several, Well, a couple of listeners have pointed out that uh, no. McMurdo Base in Antarctica is not named for McMurdo Silver. Um, I'm sure he was a great guy, but you know, not he didn't get the base named after him there. So, anyway, I stand corrected. Uh, I still think that McMurdo Silver is a very interesting guy with a with a, with a fantastic radio name. And uh, I thanks are thank everybody who wrote in about that one. Um, okay, listen. I want to ask something here. Am I the only one? who has been raiding the Radio Shack parts bin. You know I'm talking about? When you go into the Radio Shack, that you're surrounded by all these gizmos, gadgets, cell phones, uh, uh, cameras, um, digital recorders, GPS devices, all this appliance electronica. But you know that way in the back someplace, back in the corner, there's the corner that's sort of, in a way aimed at us, the parts area. You know you're in the right place when you find yourself in the vicinity of the books by Forrest Mims. When you see those Forrest Mims books, you know you're getting warm. You're getting close to the parts, to the components that we're interested in. Now, I think Radio Shack got away from being uh, big supporters of Radio brewers and electronics fiends—they they may be going back in that direction. I see that they're trying to get back into the um, kind of radio fiend, electronic fan uh, market. In the it's part of the whole DIY, uh, you know, hacker space kind of movement, which is great. We applaud it. We support it. But um, for now, the parts are usually found in one of these big cabinets with drawers on it. And I don't know about you, but every time I walk into a Radio Shack, I find myself going for that cabinet and checking the drawers to see if any of our parts are there. Basically, I'm trying to see if one of us has been there already and has already conducted the kind of raid that I'm hoping myself to pull off. Um, You know the parts I'm talking about. You'll open that thing up and you'll find all kinds of transistors, most of them audio frequency transistors that you really don't want. These are for guys who are trying to fix some sort of stereo or something like that. That's not what we're interested in. We're looking for the 2N22s, 22s. We're looking for the transistors that'll work at HF. And, um, you know, um, when I go in there, I do find those transistors. And when I find them, there's usually only like three or four little packets of them. And I, I got to confess, I take them all. I do. I need them. Also, something that I really need, and I always find myself in short supply of 0.1 microfarad uh, disk capacitors bypass caps for use in rf products seems i go through 0.1 microfarad caps very very quickly so every chance i get i spot them i grab them mpf 102 uh, fet transistors i'll take them too yes thank you very much any kind of low value resistors you know the ones that whenever you have a big selection of resistors, it seems like you got all the 10 K and hundred K resistors you want, but those, uh, you know, fifties, a hundreds, tens, fifteens, they go real, real fast. So I'll grab them up also. So I don't know, maybe, maybe we should leave notes for each other. <laughs> you know, when you, when you go into the drawer and you're in the two n twenty two twenty two area and you take them all, you can leave, leave a little note saying, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I needed them. Uh, I hope they restock quickly. Um, now, I also wonder if, like the, the executives, the logistical executives at Radio Shack uh, notice this in any way. Whether they make note of the fact that that certain parts are going for some reason a lot faster and in more of um, kind of in bulk purchases, not in ones or twos, but the the drawers are being cleaned out. Must be kind of kind of intriguing or interesting for them. I don't know. Okay, uh, speaking of parts hw7s the hw7 antics continue you know uh, ever since wa30 sent me the hw7 i've really taken a liking to this uh, little rig matter of fact the hw8 is now on the shelf and the hw7 is in the position of honor at the operating table and i use it i use it all the time not so much for operating but when i'm in the shack and i'm listening uh, the hw7 is right there at my right hand so it's very easy to turn it on i've Flip on little power supply, turn it on. Got it on forty meters, and I um, I do quite a bit of listening to forty meter sideband using the uh, Heathkit HW7. I've really come to like the rig. I guess I like it in part because it's it's so reviled by <laughs> the mainstream amateur radio community. Community, I guess it's sort of a going against the grain thing. I mean, I've heard so many bad things about this this rig, especially the receiver that I had come to believe that it was uh, just basically unusable. And I'm happy to report that that is uh, completely untrue. You can make contacts with it, see if it works. Now, I have a theory that in days gone by, this uh, this rig was harder to use than it is now. Um, and I my suspicion is that I'm not experiencing as much of the shortwave broadcast uh, breakthrough that guys experienced during the 1970s and, well, I guess during the 1970s and 80s, um, because there's not too many powerful, there's not as many powerful shortwave broadcast stations on the air now as there was way back when. So it may be that this is a kind of a, a benefit of the decline of shortwave broadcast that we're, um, we're now able <laughs> to use Receivers with, uh, with, with relatively weak or, I guess, flimsy front ends. Um, the front end on the HW7, I put it up on the blog, you could take a look at it. It's nothing more than one uh, tuned circuit followed by a 40673 dual gate MOSFET. The, uh, that one tuned circuit doesn't stop a whole lot of uh, adjacent channel RF from getting through. And that uh, 40673 dual-gate MOSFET, much as I love it, is an excellent square-law detector. So uh, you could basically be – you you could use that all by itself there as sort of a uh, shortwave broadcast receiver, um, which is what happened way back when. You know, it's microphonic. You tap on the controls, and you could hear it coming through. I read an article that I'm going to tell you about claims that guys – could actually speak loudly into the relative power meter on the front panel and hear their voices <laughs> through the headphones. I haven't tried that. But uh there there's an example of uh what we mean by microphonics. The um receiver preselector selector is really touchy. You gotta get it just right. And you're 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 hearing the microphonics as you move that capacitor around so that makes it more difficult. But hey, it's um you know, it's a simple a little rece- little transceiver, and it it does the job, and uh, I admire it for its simplicity. Um, I know a number of other guys have been um, fooling around with the, the HW7, and uh, there's been some discussion on the QRPL uh, reflector about it, so it's kind of a good time to be in HW7 land. You know, uh, coincidentally, our friend Roberto down in Guadalajara, Mexico, a frequent contributor to the podcast and and, uh, a frequent uh, contributor to the blog also. His comments are always uh, very welcome and very entertaining. Uh, He asked on the QRPL Reflector for someone to send him a copy of an article from the 1975 September 1975 issue of 73 Magazine. And the, the title of the article is Queen Roger Papa from Hotel Whiskey 7. You don't hear QRP referred to in its phonetics very often. But there it is. Queen Roger Papa from Hotel Whiskey 7. Articles by Ken Cole, W7IDF. And Roberto had heard about this article, asked somebody to send it to him. Um, Michael, AA1TJ, uh, came through and um, got, us the, uh, uh, got us the article. So um, i real pleased about that. It's, it's a wonderful article. And it's um it's got a lot of panache. It's got a lot of style. You know, too much of the technical literature that we have is is really cut and dry. I think somewhere along the line, engineers are told that when you're writing about technical stuff, you've got to be sort of of the Joe Friday uh, school of 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 technical writing. just the facts, the facts, nothing but the facts. Um, well, can is obviously not um, in that. It doesn't really follow that style because, like I said, there's a lot of panache. He opens the article by saying, We're all eclecticians, and some of us are careless punsters." <laughs> he talks about uh, the HW7, how he got it. He goes through a lot of really interesting um, uh, mods, He and he points out how, how easy it is to modify this rig. Quote, Remove four screws, lift off the top half of the cabinet, and every component is visible. Four more screws to drop the bottom shell and have at the circuit board. No cramping, layering, or sequential disassembly tricks. A sturdy and attractive, truly portable, complete HF station for $80. Um, Really, um, and he goes on to say, the simplicity of the front-end receiver is breathtaking. (laughs) That's a diplomatic way of putting it one tuned circuit and one dual gate MOSFET. Um, and he goes on in a, in a similar kind of poetic way. He does some mods. He put two six volt Nike heads, um, and some additional stuff in there and changed things around a bit, did some nice mods. He also comments on a mod that, uh, that we've been discussing on the QRPL reflector, Nick, WA five BDU. And, um, And Roberto have been talking about this. It's something that Mike KL7R and I talked about, uh, I think, in one of the early editions of this podcast. Um, And Ken writes, um, And now about the VFO. It's stable enough that I spend too much time listening to sideband on 15. And I suppose someone will soon come up with a scheme to put the HW7 on double sideband suppressed carrier. The dial is described as virtually backlash-free. Yeah, you know, uh, that DSB idea is something that, uh, that Michael, uh, Mike kale 7 r came up with, and he actually did the mod on his HW8, and he put a um, a balanced modulator in there. I always thought that he, he needed to take it another step. I thought that he had to do modifications or should have done modifications on the final amplifiers because I think he left it in Class C, uh, which I don't think is... Uh, too good, uh, but I found a picture from Mike's blog of him uh, working on this modification to the HW8, and he shows the uh, uh, DSB signal coming out of the uh, antenna jack. I believe that's where he was testing it, and it looked quite good. So um, who knows? Maybe Mike had, may have found a way of doing this without any mods to the uh, to the power amplifier. Um, Let's see. Looking through Ken's article, which is a real winner. Um, let's see. He talks about how he used it, all of his success, working JAs, breaking pileups, and um, but then at the end, he talks about the spiritual dimension of this, and this is the, the philosophical part of the uh, program, I guess, that I talked to talked about in the beginning. Um, let's see. let's see gotta remember we're back in the 1970s now guys so imagine longer haircuts tie-dye bell-bottom pants Uh, playing it cool by opening with a careful search for cqs that are reasonably strong and unanswered may be the smart way to begin your qrp log but it's human nature to want to call to an empty corner of space and hear an acknowledging reply there are times when reality is a slippery concept especially in the 1970s, and it's nice to be noticed. But however you shuffle the deck, the high cards in this game are patience, determination, perhaps stubbornness, and lore of the art. Lore of the art, that's what we need more of. Getting results with expertise instead of KVA muscle purchased from a power company is, besides being good ecology manners, a challenging exercise bringing many rewards, not the least being log entries sure to elicit gasps of admiration from your skeptical, watt-rich buddies. Snorts of disbelief are equally satisfying, and to these you can reply with a reminder that the narrow edge of the hand has been proven more effective than the blunt fist by hundreds of TV scripts, if not by the commercials. Ken then goes on to actually quote Kung Fu. You don't get too many Kung Fu quotes in the ham radio literature. I think we need more of them. Here we go. Kung Fu. It is easy to push needle into wooden wall. Try it with a football and you go bananas. Now, I don't know if that's an actual Kung Fu quote, but Ken, it's his article, so we'll take his word for it. He goes on. Another benefit is that competing from a position of disadvantage does discipline the mind wonderfully little is taken at face value ground systems are refurbished old connections resoldered everything that can be tightened profitably is antennas are reevaluated lowered raised slewed and tipped mismatches are analyzed and corrected slip, sh- slip shot and make do are sins of the past Test gear is put to work as dust motes rise from exhumed textbooks. I want to read that one again. Test gear is put to work as dust motes rise from exhumed textbooks. All that neglected hands work gets attention, and in the process, your smarts multiply and amateur radio benefits. So So operating low power on the DC bands is rewarding and instructive, Besides being a lot of fun. But it hasn't been a wildly popular aspect of our hobby, and I think the Heath Company deserves credit for taking a chance with the HW7. How about a moment of meditative silence in congenial tribute? I could use that. Okay, guys, so let's have a moment of meditative silence in congenial tribute to Heath Kit for their HW7. <laughs> All right, good. Ken Cole, thanks very much to Roberto for sending me that. You guys should look for this article. It's a real hoot. Um, and uh, a lot of good information in there about the, the good old HW7. Let's see what else we have now. Oh, man, I you know, you, you I've, I've been warning you about this. I mean, I I've felt myself, you know, moving along the hippie trail. I told you I got a compost pot. Just uh, yesterday I was out uh, putting... Uh, mulch I didn't even know what mulch was a while back, but now I'm putting mulch on the uh on the front yard for elisa's garden um I started riding a bicycle to work, and I really like it um reducing my carbon footprint at you know if this keeps up any day now I'm gonna be wearing a tie dye t shirt and I'm going to have a big ponytail um The kids are kind of worried, but um <laughs> For now, I'm just going along on the bicycle. And, you know, I want to say, I, 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 you think about things when you're going along on the bike. It's not like running. When, when I used to be a runner, when I ran, I couldn't think of anything but where I was going to put my foot next. But the bike is good for uh, contemplation. And I, I, I really like that on the bike, now the bike is illuminated with LEDs, with light-emitting diodes. And I find that very pleasing and satisfying for some strange reason. Um some very kind listeners sent me a thing called a gizmo. It's a little lamp that you have on an elastic band. You can put it around your head. Very useful on the workbench, or when looking for that that uh, little part or screw or nut that rolled off the table and went under the operating table. Um, anyway, uh, I, I wear that sometimes when I'm on the bike, or I wrap it around the headlight, on the, wrap it around the handlebars. Um, I was wearing it one time out in the front yard when I was looking for something, and the neighbors said it reminded them of, well, the TV show CSI, and they wanted to know if I was searching for for dead bodies. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, I kind of find it pleasing that my bicycle now is illuminated by light-emitting diodes. Um, The batteries last forever. I can can forget, sometimes I forget to turn the lights off when I park the bike, and I come back eight or ten hours later, and the light's still blazing away just as bright as before. And I like to think about the, uh, kind of the theory behind how those light emitting diodes emit the light and, uh, good stuff. I don't know if you guys know what I mean. I guess it's, uh, I guess it's kind of a Zen thing, maybe a hippie thing, light emitting diodes on the bicycle. I like it. Um, let's see. Oh, I want to tell you guys, I had an excellent radio day yesterday. It was really a wonderful radio day. Um, I told you that I'm on the blog. I announced that last week I started having trouble with my beloved Drake 2B, and it pains me to even say those words. Having trouble with my Drake 2B because it's given me so little trouble over the years, and I feel it's almost offensive to say that the uh, that this receiver is in some way failing. But failing it was because I read on Q P L that the sunspots were coming back, and that the higher HF bands were starting to open up and I decided well let's take a listen to 17. I love 17 meters. It's my favorite band. I was on 17 meters from the Azores 2000 to 2003 and it was great. I was using real low power gear, 5 watts. I was working all over the world on on DSB and SSB. I had a at a great location. I was completely surrounded by salt water from thousands of miles around and but anyway, it was it was a lot of fun, and I'm kind of looking forward to the return of 17. So I said, let me listen to the good old band. And to my dismay, I found out that the Drake 2B was not working on 17 meters. To get it to work, of course, the Drake 2B was designed and built before 17 meters existed as an amateur band. But the um, the uh, Drake engineers, with great foresight, had left up open the possibility of putting additional frequencies into that receiver. What you need to do is you need to consult a little chart that they have in the manual, find out what crystal you need, and just plug the crystal in the appropriate slot. For 17 meters, one of your options was a 22 megahertz crystal plugged into the E socket. socket. And uh, back in the Azores 10 years ago, I got that crystal and put it in there. And it's been chugging along just fine ever since until this week. Anyway, something was wrong. It wasn't working. There were a few possibilities. We discussed it a bit on the blog in an email. It it could have been the band switch. Maybe the band switch was getting a little bit funky. I sprayed it with a lot of contact cleaner. That wasn't it. Um, There were a couple of resistors that could have gone high in value. I sort of suspected that was not the case. I haven't really had too many of those kind of problems with the 2B. Um, I thought it might have been the 6U8 tube going a little soft on me, so I swapped out the tube. No, that wasn't it. So... It looked like it was the um, the crystal, and it turned out yes, in fact it was. I decided that I was going to focus on Saturday morning on getting the 2B back in operation on 17, and I found a a quick way to do some troubleshooting and confirmation of the uh, crystal as the uh, problematic part. Uh, what I did was I found that for the uh, for, for covering the 10 meter band on the Drake 2B they use uh, crystals around 24 megahertz so close enough. I took the 24 megahertz crystal that I know is working because I can tune that portion of the 10 meter band and plugged it into the E socket where the 22 megahertz crystal normally goes and it worked just fine. It was um, The oscillator was running there was no problem. And then I took the uh, problematic 22 megahertz crystal and put it back in that slot for the uh, 10 meter band and see if I get the oscillator to oscillate there, and no dice so uh, the, um, the really strong almost confirmed suspicion is that the crystal has somehow gone bad. I, I don't you know it's, I guess it's been 10 years, but these things la- usually last a lot longer. I have uh, crystals in my from the Swan 240 in my uh, homebrew 17 meter sideband transmitter that were built in 1962. Um, but Roberto down there, in Mexico thought maybe it got jostled or bumped or something in the trip up from, uh, well, the trip back from Rome could have been, I don't know. I don't know. But, it, but, but the crystal is not, not good anyway. But here, look, I, I managed to, uh, to get this, get this thing fixed with only uh, junk box parts. I started looking at the chart that Heathkit provided on the crystals and how to tune various frequencies and I discovered that there was another way to tune um, 17 meters, and that is by using a crystal of around 14 megahertz plugged into socket D, and uh, started rummaging through the um, through the uh, junk box crystal section and found a, a crystal for 14.21 megahertz. Perfect. Quick consultation with the charts revealed that this thing would yield the entire 17-meter amateur radio band. Popped it in there. Worked like a charm. Now, this crystal was originally in my 20-meter double sideband band uh, transceiver using any 602s. Um, I don't use the crystal anymore because I went to uh, ceramic resonators in this rig. This is now the the ceramic resonator rig. So, um, very satisfying repair. I uh, got it going, and I got it... Playing right now on seventeen meters. Let me see if anybody's on here. Hold on. Yeah, some activity on sideband. Let me say hold on. Yeah. It's a heterodon there, but listen hold on. Sounds Irish. My pleasure, Dennis. Uh, anyone else? This is Echo India 9 Juliet Uniform. Echo India 9 Juliet Uniform. That's what I'm talking about. That's, and that's very appropriate because some of my best contacts on 17 meters back in the early part of the last decade were with Irish stations. My friend uh, Michael, EI8CL. Uh, what a great guy! We used to get into these long talks from the Azores. Sometimes he'd be down in the Canary Islands. Sometimes he'd be up in Ireland. But uh, those were some of my favorite contacts ever. So seventeen is back, and it's a pleasure to listen to it on the Drake Two B that I just uh, I've just fixed. Hey, what else? Um, oh, and then the icing on the cake yesterday. The icing on the cake. I just get the Drake 2B finished. And you know you, you know that glow of satisfaction you have when you fix a broken radio? You just fit, sit back and you think, oh man, life is good. I fixed it. And then I said, okay, time to take a break. Let me go see what the mailman left me. Walk out to the mailbox. Instead of the normal pile of bills, there's that beautiful plastic envelope. You guys who subscribe know what I mean. It's a beautiful plastic envelope, and inside, Sprat, issue number 148 from the GQRP Club, autumn 2011. Beautiful. Let me see here. How many pages? 43, 44 pages of Ham Radio Brotherhood, technical information, enthusiasm, inspiration. Great stuff. Really enjoy it. Thanks to the guys from GQRP for putting it out. Another wonderful edition. Guys, if you're not subscribed to Sprat, as they used to say in the Army, you're wrong. That's all I can say. Get in touch with them. They're on the internet. Very cooperative. Price is right. It'll change your radio life. Sprat from the GQRP Club. A great radio Saturday here. Let's see. You know, I, I think part of the thing is I, I might have mentioned this earlier. It's autumn, it's cold, temperatures low. Bert wrote from UVA out there in uh, in Charlottesville that he's got the urge to to melt solder and heat up filaments and man, I'm telling you, I I I, I want to do more home brewing. I've got several projects. I want to get the uh, 17 meter rigs going again. I might put up the same antenna that I had in the air. I have a picture it up on up on the blog. I have all the essential pieces. I just need to go buy some telescoping fishing poles fishing poles. The idea is the fishing poles go out from the center um, support. I still have the center support that I built out in the Azores. And I put the new telescoping fishing poles out there and connect the wire elements to it with a uh, um, with some cable ties. We're in business. I need some amplifiers for the uh, 17-meter sideband and double sideband rigs. I think I'm going to go with uh, Farhan's JBOT uh, transmitter. Uh, Um, amplifiers that just a bunch of transistor amplifiers I want to do that and um, I don't know I have a feeling that 17 is coming back it'll be great fun hey there's an event coming up guys I should have mentioned but I, I forgot just let me hold on a second here I want to save this before I lose all this good podcast stuff hold on okay here's the event coming up October 4th this year in commemoration of the event that took place on October 4th, um, 1957, an IGY event. The Soviets put the Sputnik in orbit and shook everything up. <laughs> um, Michael, AA1TJ, and a number of others got the idea that we should try to recreate all around the world in different workshops and uh, on workbenches the, uh, the transmitter that was used to send those beep, beep, beep signals from outer space back to back to, back to to Earth. And uh, Michael got a hold of some parts and kits, sent them out to guys all over the world. He sent me one, but because I had failed to update my address at QRZ.com, um, it went to the wrong location. It's now somewhere, probably somewhere in a U.S. government facility where they're wondering why, I was being sent uh, <laughs> Soviet radio tubes. <laughs> oh no, in trouble again. Um, uh, but guys all around the world, guys in the UK, Germany, uh, the United States, uh, Canada—I'm sure Australians are involved—are building um, sort of rough replicas using Russian tubes of the um, of the transmitter from Sputnik. And they're going to put them on the air on October 4th on the 15-meter band, which is as close as we can get to the 20 megahertz frequency used by the Sputnik. So um, they're going to make QSOs. I have decided how I am going to participate in this event. I have in front of me, gentlemen, a Hammerland HQ100, which, according to Raymond Moore's book, was manufactured sometime after 1956 which means that some intrepid youngster could have been hunched over this radio listening to Sputnik. Now this one was in the Dominican Republic at that time. So I guess there was a real possibility that they were listening for Sputnik with this thing. Certainly somebody was listening to Sputnik with this model receiver. Tunes 20 megahertz. It's got sort of a BFO in it. It's got a Q multiplier that you can crank up. I, uh, I I took the uh, crystal oscillator, I mean the, the marker 100KC oscillator in there and changed it into another BFO, put a 455KC crystal in there and now it goes just fine and serves as a BFO. But that's what I'm going to be, I'm going to be listening for these guys. While they're working each other with the uh, 1957 transmitters, I'm going to be listening to them on a 1956-1957 receiver. I put an article about all this up on the blog, and there was an interesting thing that happened with it. Um, I needed a picture of hams listening to Sputnik because I always like to put a picture with the blog article. And the picture I found was perfect because it was this very earnest-looking, kind of engineer-looking teenager, 1957, He's got a Hammerland receiver. He's surrounded by spectators. They're at the Texas State Fair, October 1957. Me a way about the picture was that the uh, the youngster pictured was none other than Roy Welch, a radio amateur who's been involved in satellites for, for a long time now. When I was in the Dominican Republic in 1994, we all got real interested in satellites. We were interested particularly in the uh, the Russian RS-12 satellite. And uh, we desperately needed a way of predicting passes. I mean, the thing's only overhead 20 minutes or so each day in useful terms. And so you have to know when. And um, we were doing all kinds of crazy things, uh, making phone calls to Miami getting computer connections with Miami over the uh, phone lines to CompuServe we were wasting a whole lot of money on that so I wrote away to AmSat and they sent me this wonderful computer program called Orbits 2 one of my favorite programs ever and it was written by by Mr. Welch, by 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 Mr. Welch by Roy Welch and uh, so it was it was a real hoot to see him there huh at the Texas State Fair, tuning into Sputnik. Arnie Coro also wrote in. Arnie is at uh, CO2KK in in Cuba. He said that he too listened. And I've received many emails from from other guys too talking about their adventures listening to those uh, those first transmissions from outer space. What a what a great event! And what a great idea to commemorate in the way. Uh, Good luck to you, Michael, the uh, hero of the Hobbit Hole, QRP laureate, QR poet. Um, Good luck. It's a great effort, and I think it's a real good example of what we've been calling the uh, International Brotherhood of Electronic Wizards. Um, uh, very, very good stuff. Let's see. What else we got here on the list? Oh, I want to ask for some help here. I goofed again. I uh, Before we get to the mailbag, just let me mention, you know, uh, most of the podcasts I announce via the blog, and I put a message out on QRL and the GQRP Reflector. We also maintain, albeit with a little bit of a delay, uh, the old um, soldersmoke.com website. But I know there's a number of guys who use that as their main way of finding out if um, a new podcast has been produced. They just check that website. So it's important for me to keep it updated, and I have the intention of doing it more frequently. But in the course of updating it last week, I some managed... To download only a portion of the the complete list of so- Solder Smoke podcasts, and then I updated it and uploaded it again, and managed to lose the complete list. You know, the list has the uh, the URL and then a little synopsis of the podcast. the The audio files are still there. That's not the problem. It's just the list with the summary of each podcast has sort of gone electronically missing at least from my computer now i'm thinking that some of you guys probably have the old updated version in your computer cache or something so if somebody has one of those around please uh, send me the file because it'll save me a whole lot of retyping and reconstruction of that of that list Um, no rush but uh, i'd like to get around to it and have the archive properly maintained Guys, that brings us now. It's time for um, Solder Smoke Mailbag. Ooh, that's awesome. All right, with uh, an HW7 on 40 meters, playing some CW in the background, it's time for Solder Smoke Mailbag. Got some nice mail from uh, our friend Nigel M0NDE over there in the U.K. Nigel's recently moved away from uh, Dover, where i met with met up with him a couple of years ago but he's still in touch with uh with ian g3 roo uh ian is sort of his mentor on a paraset project these guys are building the uh the spy sets i had a i had a chance to operate uh uh ian's a uh, paraset a uh, spy radio when i was at his uh at his house in dover a few years back it was a real thrill so uh Good luck with the, all the projects, Nigel, and good luck to all the uh, all the lads there in the uh, Dover Construction Club. A great operation. Got a nice message from Corey WA3UVV. Yeah, this one was so nice. I posted it up on the blog. If you want to take a look at the whole thing, it's on the soldersmoke.blogspot.com. And Corey has a way with words. Uh, he he talks about uh, the uh, quote the manly way to tune a tube transmitter, and it involves. Uh, a tungsten filament light bulb. Um, I think it was uh, Steve Smith who came back and said no that the real manly way to do it is by pulling an arc off the uh, off the plate coil with a pencil. <laughs> um, he also uh, Corey also referred to CB as a uh, quote gateway drug to ham radio. <laughs> um, Eddie uh, KC4LVV, two two VVs in a row there. Eddie KC4LVV. Hope I got that right. I talked about um, how solder smoke has uh, rekindled his interest in ham radio and electronic home brewing, and he's now um, happily fixing things with his son. He recently put his soldering skills to use and amazed his son by actually repairing a broken Nintendo DS. Uh, good thing, good good thing, Eddie. I remember my, when my kids were playing with Nintendo DSs, and uh, they are uh, important. Uh, pieces of electronic equipment for kids that age, so uh, um, good going there. Jim, W-A-8-Z-H-N, um, provides yet another great name from uh, ham radio history. Well, not really history, but from his own personal um, radio background. Um, he talks about his electronics instructor in college, a fellow who was a very early um, radio amateur and his name was Alpheus Romian Bitter. Yes, <laughs> um, got a nice message from from Tad, and he pointed us to uh, some YouTube videos on a uh, a really interesting radio amateur, an old timer named W uh, with a call sign W one F P Z. They went out and uh, did some interviews with him, and put the interviews up on um, on YouTube. I have the links on the um, on the page. Check it out. Um, William, AE5CP, wrote wrote to tell us that he is a confirmed knack victim, and I, I certainly can attest to that. He points out as the primary evidence for this the fact that at the age of eight, he asked for soldering iron for his birthday. No further proof required there, William. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I asked about um, what's happened to uh, Walt Hutchins, the fellow who wrote Um, the articles that I like so much for Electric Radio Magazine, and I got several uh, responses, and and one fellow pointed out that Walt has been uh, uh, providing assistance via the HBR um, reflector to guys who are building the HBR tube type receivers, so Walt is still active in in electronics, glad to hear about that. Got a nice email from Jeff, uh, KO7M. Jeff is the fellow with the uh, The MFJ Cub in the Piper Cub. You know, every once in a while, Jeff sends us some pictures, and it just stirs up feelings of admiration and envy in many of us. Uh, When we see him with that little pup tent next to the Piper Cub, with the MFJ Cub inside, off at some scenic location up in the Pacific Northwest or in the Rocky Mountains. Man, I'm telling you, Jeff, you got it good. Uh, Jeff is working on an old National SW3, which he um, reluctantly points out is a regenerative receiver. He's got to build the power supply for it. Good luck with that, Jeff. Remember my warnings. Um, okay. Um, then I got a real nice uh, email. Uh, this 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 one I, I printed out the whole thing. It's really nice. There's so much so much good stuff in it. This comes to us from um, from Doug W8NFT. He starts out. Hi Bill, I am a big Solder Smoke fan. I subscribe to your Solder Smoke emails, listen to all of your podcasts, and have bought and read your book. I was born with congenital nacitus. I was always intrigued by or involved in some scientific endeavor as far back as I could remember, including model airplanes, flying them, electronics, ham radio operator at age 14, and homemade, not model, rockets, including the fuel. Hmm. This was in the early 50s, before most people even knew what a rocket was. Robert Goddard was my hero. Well, listen, listen, Doug, I have here in the shack up on the wall uh, several pictures. Uh, I, got a, I got one door here that's got all kinds of stuff tacked to it, mostly artwork from Billy and Maria. But amidst the artwork there is the iconic photo. Of uh, Dr. Robert Goddard standing there on a cold winter's day next to the first liquid-fueled rocket. I'm sure you know the picture I'm talking about. I have it up there. His picture is right next to uh, that of young Marconi, sitting there with his uh, with his rig. Um, Robert Goddard was my hero. I read all of the neat science fiction books and collections of the time, but I never believed I would live to see space flight as portrayed in the stories. So, in October of 1957. Just as I was starting my sophomore year at Ohio State University majoring in physics, I was astounded to hear the news reports that Russia had a satellite in it. I had heard of the U.S. and Russia's plans for utilizing ICBMs to do this, but took it with a grain of salt. Anyway, I was devouring all the information I could get about the event. I was buying newspapers and magazines from all over reading them, and then storing, piling them under my bed in my rooming house to keep forever. Unfortunately, I came back to the room from class one day and found that the cleaning lady had <laughs> discarded them all. Well, you know, we've all been there, Doug. You know, that's like the old uh, uh, t-shirt. You know, I used to be a millionaire, but then my mother threw my comic books away. Um, let's see. He's got some recordings from, um, from Sputnik that he's going to send to me. He closes And this is an an appropriate way to end uh, this week's mailbag um, because he says that, uh, by the way, I did listen to the live broadcast signal from Sputnik in 1957 using my trusty Helicrafter's S-53A ham receiver. Thanks for that, Doug. There you go. That's an inspirational message. On the eve of the anniversary of Sputnik flight... Good luck to uh, all those intrepid radio builders who have risked life and limb for, to build radio rigs with uh, Russian tubes from the 1950s. I will be tuning in with my Hammerland HQ100 receiver, 7-3 from Northern Virginia. Ciao, bravi ragazzi. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about SolderSmoke, the podcast, and our blog put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support.